This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. This is our third episode discussing Mary Shelley and her masterpiece, Frankenstein. In episode one, we basically talked about her life, as well as the title and the quote on a title page, and that's as far as we got. Episode two, we discussed chapters one through five, introduced the setting of Geneva and Ingolstadt, as well as some of the main ideas that we should be thinking about as we go through the book. We discussed Mary Shelley's interest in Rousseau's perspective on the nature of man and the role of education. We also discussed the role of science and the current events of the day as they played a role in her creation of the book. And finally, we discussed how Shelley used many of her personal experiences, including giving birth to children as well as her postpartum depression, to develop roles and experiences of childbirth as it plays out in Chapter 5 of the book. And as we shall see all the way to the very end. That's right. And although we got into chapter five a little, honestly, we didn't get very far. We left off where Victor makes the monster, then he turns and flees. So it's time to see what this noble, omniscient, ever charming man does. Oh my. <laughs> Before we do, and I know we're going to try to cover a lot of ground today in the story, roughly chapters 5 through 16, I do want to ask a question. I mean, isn't it strange that Shelley, a feminist, has made both her main character and the monster men? I mean, are we supposed to make something out of that? Well, uh, there seems to be no way to run away from gender politics and a birth about and a book about birth, I guess. Uh, and I will definitely not claim to be an expert in this field. There is literally 200 years of discussion basically asking that question. But like everything else in this book, 
this is an answer that's quite layered. And I guess the best way to kind of discuss it is to lay out the layers and just like Shelly would have wanted, let everyone make what they will of them. So layer number one, let's talk about nature. Because one thing to notice in the book is that nature is female. We think of mother nature being female, but you know, what does that mean? Nature is called by female pronouns. Victor actually says, I pursued nature to her hiding places. As you read further into the book, it becomes evident, and this kind of female referencing of nature becomes uh, more frequent, really. Another point to make is the connection between nature, femininity, and beauty. And there are a lot of beautiful descriptions of nature, truly beautiful. In fact, it kind of makes me want to go to Seamount Blanc in, in Scotland specifically. But in a sense, this too is a bit of a reflection of how Shelley kind of portrays this imbalance that exists in the world as it relates to sexes. So her female characters, let me just kind of flesh out my idea here, are always described by their physical attributes. Both Elizabeth and Justine, but not just them, but specifically them, they're portrayed as beautiful. And it's even strange that, you know, Justine is about to die. Spoiler, that's going to happen. Shelley mentions how pretty she is. What an odd thing to say when you're discussing somebody's death. And we'll get back to that just in a minute. But if you look at the creation of the monster, he specifically tries to make it beautiful. He's very, very intentional about that. And what critics have said about this is that what Shelley is saying is that for men, or at least Victor Gary, I'm not going to throw you in with (laughs) (laughs) I don't go into the bus this time. No, no, no. Well, he's trying to say maybe perhaps that he's trying to create a world of men for men where there's no need for a woman except for perhaps as an adornment or as an accessory, not as a full participant in life. And I guess you can see how well Shelley thinks of this worldview. It's kind of a bust (laughs) from the beginning. Nature is not an adornment. Nature has a will. Nature is powerful. Nature is dominant. And she cannot be tamed. And you can say the exact same thing about women. Even if you subjugate her, as she saw playing out in the world she was literally living in, and this is where, at least for me, I remember that Shelley is still an 18-year-old girl in a very sexually charged, unhealthy relationship, In her own life, she's been viewed very much like this, but where she is also bearing a lot of responsibility. I mean, she's the one that's been pregnant three times. She's bearing responsibility physically and emotionally. And in terms of the world, it's holding her accountable for these children. This is a woman who cannot even publish the book that she's writing under her own name. And even though her father and husband are, are liberal by the standards of their day, what she saw everywhere is what she portrays in these books or in this book. And she sees women kind of being silenced all the way to the grave. Now, there's little doubt that she felt this way. I mean, of course, we don't know, but how could it not bother her that she had to publish her book as if she were a man? She got Percy to write the intro and Of course, many women were doing that during this time period. And remember, it was in that same time period, once a woman married, she was legally the property of her husband. And let me just add, Switzerland, although we think of it really as a progressive country, and it is, 
has not exactly been a leader in women's rights. Switzerland was the last democracy to give women the right to vote in 1971. Wow. In fact, the only other two European countries that followed Switzerland are Moldova and Liechtenstein, interestingly enough. Uh, They did not pass an Equal Rights Amendment making women equal in marriage until 1985. So these are things that Mary Shelley would have been particularly interested in. In her day... A woman could not testify in court. She could not vote. It was commonly believed women did not have the biological capability to have rational thought. So just my impression is she's not acting angry, although she probably is. She's making observations and perhaps laying out logical arguments to the natural consequences to what she perceives as a perverse arrangement between the sexes. I think so. And I think there's more to say. And uh, there is room to think about this for a long time. Uh, Mary has observed this patriarchal society where men are given education, power, responsibility, and women are considered playthings, adornments, but and get these tedious tasks for caring for men and children that maybe they want, and maybe they don't. Uh, and I think what she wants to say is, This sucks, but it doesn't just suck for women. It sucks for men, too, this type of societal construction that's imbalanced. So there's a lot of critics that uh, will even take it farther to say that Shelley claims to be making the case that men are afraid. But definitely, Mary has observed a patriarchal society where men are given education, power, responsibility. Women are considered playthings, adornments, plus they're getting saddled for taking tedious tasks that perhaps they don't want. And maybe she doesn't think this is all that awesome, not just for women, but for men too. This type of societal construction really kind of is imbalanced. Uh, And perhaps it's fraught with danger and leads to unhappiness for everyone. Frankenstein here has transgressed against the feminine principle inherent in nature of creating life. Never mind the theological one that God ordained women to have the power of life. So in violating these kind of things, are there consequences? Hmm. Well, that was the short version. <laughs> I'm, glad I I'm glad I didn't ask for the long one. I know. Well, let's talk about the story. So Frankenstein has run away. He's out and about, and he runs into a childhood friend, coincidentally, Henry Clerval. Such a coincidence. He shows up just at this perfect time. Now, we've kind of met this character briefly before. He uh, is from Geneva. They grew up together. He's kind of a foil to Victor in a lot of ways. But basically, Clerval is everything good. He's a really idealized character. Uh, he's You don't see anything negative about him ever. Uh, In some ways here, his purpose in life, how fortunate for Victor, is to take care of Victor. And he seems to enjoy doing this. Frankenstein immediately loses all thoughts of the monster, except when he takes Clerval to his house and hopes to find the monster gone. And Clerval spends his time pretty much waiting hand and foot on Frankenstein, what ends up being months on end. But he doesn't complain. He actually has a lot of joy in doing it. It's his purpose. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Seems that that's uh, what Victor demands of everybody. It's a pattern. Yes. Uh, I do want to point out that as close as Victor claims to be to Clairvaux, he is never even tempted to tell Henry what he's been up to. He says this, I have lately been so deeply engaged in one occupation that I've not allowed myself sufficient rest, as you see. But I hope, I sincerely hope, 
that all these employments are now at an end and I am at length free. I kind of feel like I would have asked, but, and I know it's, <laughs> what have you been up to? <laughs> I know, I know it's taking it back to feminism for a moment and we need to go on. Uh, but it's kind of funny, the description that there, and there's a lot to comment here. He jumps up and down like a crazy person when the monster isn't in the house and he can just pretend that it, it never happened. He just wishes it away. But obviously, everybody knows you can't just wish away the existence of another person. But as many women also know, the emotional impact of a birth can create emotions that are real, hormonal, biological, that are kind of negative at this time, depression-like, and you do want the baby to go away. Uh, Shelly knows this. She's had these experiences and she's expressing it. And I think it's worth mentioning one more thing. I really should have said this when you first asked, answered me the question about why Frankenstein is a man instead of a woman, because there's a whole thought, a line of thought on this. Shelly experienced, we all know, postpartum depression and describes it, even though she had no way of knowing at the time that that was even a thing. She also watched Percy struggle with depression in his own way and in his own right. So there's a lot of people that think, and they're probably not wrong, it's a good idea to say that Mary made Frankenstein a man because she's kind of developing over the course of the book this picture or a portrait of what depression kind of looks like, not just for women, but for anyone. And if the character had been a woman, the average reader of their day, particularly a male reader, would have said, well, that's just what women do. That's because she's a woman. Women have melancholy. Women are dramatic. And so kind of to take that element out of the the equation, she neutralizes that entire discussion and making Victor a man. So it's a theory. I think it's a good one. And it's just one more layer to kind of throw out there. Well, it is interesting because she had to have had firsthand knowledge of depression because page after page after page after page, she very eloquently describes what depression looks like and uh, in Frankenstein. So and it affects everybody. It can. It does. It does. Uh, and so in chapter six and seven, we see Shelley change the way she tells the story for a minute. And it falls at an interesting place in the story because for me, it's chapter five, where I begin to question whether or not I trust the perspective of Victor. In the beginning of his college days, his behavior can be explained away. But in this chapter, his actions are undeniably questionable. For sure. And small confession. Personally, I have no problem making a rush to judgment on this guy. I have already decided at this point in the book, like, this guy's garbage. And I'm kind of happy to see in chapter six a break from his voice and hear the voice of uh, Elizabeth. And then in chapter seven, uh, his father. And both of these are through um, letters that they write. Elizabeth, of course, we're going to see isn't a feminist outspoken critic or anything like that. And in a sense, she's really kind of the ideal woman of her day. She's beautiful. She's a wonderful caretaker. And she sees her role solely to provide for the other people, the other men in her life, to use kind of a cliched phrase, she really does kind of have a golden heart, a heart of gold. She also introduces us to this really sweet character, darling William. William is their little brother, and he seems pretty perfect, too. Uh, as a reminder, that is also the name of her beautiful son in real life, who is somewhere between the ages of one and two when she writes the book. So, 
Victor reads Elizabeth's letter and wants to finally write back. However, and I love this, the exertion of writing her a letter is taxing. And I quote, it greatly fatigued me. He certainly doesn't come across as a very strong man or a strong person at this point, but he manages to recover from his illness thanks to Clairval and even go on vacation. Life seems good for everyone, but that's just for one minute. And then letter number two comes along and it says, William is dead. Elizabeth blames herself. But what is most important in my mind is that the murderer has left a mark. The print of the murderer's finger was on his neck. This seems to be enough to convince Victor to go home or so after six years. So he shows back up in Geneva. And again, we're going to see Shelley really kind of engaging those traditional conventions of horror because part of this is kind of terrifying when you read it. Well, especially if you're reading this by candlelight and especially if it's in England and raining, which is common. (laughs) It's completely dark when he arrives. There's a storm, a violent storm. And of course, instead of going to his house, he's going to walk around in the dark. And let me read. I perceived in the gloom a figure which stole from behind a clump of trees near me. I stood fixed, gazing intently. I could not be mistaken. A flash of lightning illuminated the object and discovered its shape plainly to me, its gigantic stature and the deformity of its aspect, more hideous than belongs to humanity, instantly informed me that it was the wretch, the filthy demon to whom I had given life. What did he there? Could he be... I shuddered at the conception of the murder of my brother. No sooner did that idea cross my imagination than I became convinced of its truth. My teeth chattered and I was forced to lean against a tree for support. The figure passed me quickly and I lost it in the gloom. Nothing in human shape could have destroyed that fair child. He was the murderer. Hmm, so he knows. He knows. And with that knowledge, at 5 a.m., he goes home And what he does after this does not speak well of his character. Of course, you won't be surprised. Nope. Uh, He watches Elizabeth blame herself for the murder, and he watches the community not just blame Justine, but literally accuse her, try her, and convict her of the murder of William. And remember, during this time period, in real life, women cannot testify in court. The responsibility would fall on a male relative to rise up and defend them, but he does not or at least does not do it very well. There seems to be a suggestion that he may have said something to the judges, but we don't know what it was. True. And in these passages, we truly see some of Shelley's most beautiful turns of phrases. She does allow Elizabeth to give a really beautiful speech. In fact, both of the girls are allowed to speak publicly here, and Shelley gives them some very eloquent lines. However, there's no speech by Victor. He owns in his conscience that he's responsible. He says things like, But I, the true murderer, felt the never-dying worm alive in my bosom, which allowed of no hope or consolation. And later on he's going to say, I beheld those I loved spend vain sorry upon the graves of William and Justine, the first hapless victims to my unhallowed arts. But nothing would even tempt him. I mean, we don't even see him thinking about exposing his secret, admitting to what he did, taking responsibility, maybe something that could have saved the life of someone. he Maybe he didn't love Justine, but the people that he said he loved, loved her. 
It's also arguable that William and Justine really are not the first victims of his unhallowed art. I would think that would actually be the monster. And I think that's an <laughs> important point the story is trying to make. So, of course, we see in Chapter 9 that guilt, the, the power of the secret, and whatever other emotion is going on affects Victor's psyche in a pretty severe way, more than anybody else. And so Victor does what Victor does. He runs away, this time into the beautiful valley of Chamonix at the base of Mont Blanc. And then he ascends up the mountain, which is actually the tallest mountain in the entire Alps mountain range, which Frankenstein later goes in great detail to describe. Besides it being the tallest, by the way, it's also considered the deadliest. Mount Montevert, the party climbs, is actually part of the Mer du Glace, which is the longest and largest glacier in France. So what he does here is no small feat. And this is where we finally get to the point in the book we've been waiting for for five chapters. A meeting between the creator and the creature, man and monster. So if you want to look at it that way, I do want to mention that you have to really give Frankenstein a lot of credit for being able to pull off this incredible feat of strength given his long periods of illness. Well, this may be a good time to point out that it is a romantic novel, <laughs> which means you don't have to think of it in terms of reality. In fact, you really actually need to suspend reality. And if you haven't noticed it, we actually already have since chapter five. We all know that you can't galvanize a monster into life. It's just not possible. But we find ourselves easily suspending reality and allowing our imagination just to kind of sink into the world and let Shelley tell us what's possible and well, what's not. Yeah, That's true. And to Shelley's credit as a writer, it never feels awkward or strained to suspend judgment like that. Sometimes it can be very obvious in the story. Uh, I don't mind believing that the monster is real. I mean, it's not offensive to imagine a sick victor climbing to the top of the mountain. Um, it's a little strange to hear the monster tell this very elaborate and very sophisticated story, but I find myself quickly accepting it, and uh, I don't know how she does it. But anyway, we accept it because he gets to explain his side of the story. I completely agree, and especially at this point when we hear the monster talking, uh, we just take everything at face value and enjoy the story because we really do want to get to hear from the monster. And I kind of like it, well, I kind of like to think of it think of it this way, is a child meeting a parent or a parent meeting their child. And of course, Victor is overwhelmed with rage and hatred when he sees his child and he gives it a name. He doesn't call it Frankenstein, by the way. He doesn't name it after himself. No, no. He says this, devil, do you dare approach me? Do not you fear the fierce vengeance of my arm wrecked on your miserable head? Be gone, vile insect or rather stay, that I may trample you to dust, and oh, that I could with an extinction of your miserable existence restore those victims whom you have so diabolically murdered. These are kind of really mean things to say. <laughs> oh, kind of? <laughs> Especially if it's your child, and Vile these are the insects, first devil. words that you ever say to them. Mm -hmm. Let's kind of read the response. What does the monster say to this Wonderful invitation to join our world. Well, let me quote the monster. Okay. He says, I expected this reception, said the demon. All men hate the wretched. How then must I be hated who are miserable beyond all living things? Yet you, my creator, detest and spurn me, thy creature, of whom thou art bound by ties only dissoluble by the annihilation of one of us. You purpose to kill me. How dare you sport thus with life? 
do your duty towards me and I will do mine towards you and the rest of mankind. If you will comply with my conditions, I will leave them and you at peace. But if you refuse, I will glut the maw of death until it be satiated with the blood of your remaining friends. Abhorred monster, fiend that thou art, the tortures of hell are too mild a vengeance for thy crimes. Wretched devil, you reproach me with your creation. Come on, then, that I may extinguish the spark which I so negligently bestowed. And then, of course, Victor is going to jump on him like he could do something. And the monster just kind of pushes him away. (laughs) He is eight feet tall. (laughs) And he will say, be calm. I entreat you to hear me before you give vent to your hatred on my devoted head. Have I not suffered enough that you seek to increase my misery? Life, although it may only be an accumulation of anguish, is dear to me and I will defend it. Remember, thou hast made me more powerful than thyself. My height is superior to thine, my joints more supple, but I will not be tempted to set myself in opposition to thee. I am thy creature, and I will be even mild and docile to my natural Lord and King, if thou wilt also perform thy part, the which thou owest me. O Frankenstein, be not equitable to every other and trample upon me alone, to whom thy justice and even thy clemency and affection is most due. Remember that I am thy creature. I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel whom thou drivest from joy for no misdeed. Everywhere I see bliss from which I alone am irrevocably excluded. I was benevolent and good. Misery made me a fiend. Make me happy, and I shall again be virtuous. And of course, there is no way to read that and not be moved. Look at the emotional language as it's written. You're made to feel empathy for the monster. Victor's reactions or his actions or his voice is very hostile. The monster is reasonable, and he makes sound arguments. Victor's just cruel. And he absolutely rejects the monster at every point. He says, be gone. He says, we're enemies. Well, and of course, we're seeing Shelley go back to what we talked about last week. The question she is raising about the nature of man, is man good or is man evil? The monster clearly believes he was born good, but misery made him evil. And he says that much. And he further argues that Victor has the power to make him happy. And if he does make him happy, he'll go back to being good. So what are we supposed to make of this? I mean, can we trust the monster here? Well, this is the conversation, and that's the conversation we're going to take up for the rest of the book, and it's going to dominate our discussion, of course, next week. We're at the middle of the book, and this is the heart of the novel. What happens in chapters 11 through 16 is the third narrative sequence, and this is the one from the voice of the monster himself. He is going to fill us in on everything that happened to him during those two years where he's been neglected. This is the story within the story within the story. And this one takes us into the mind of this created being. So Shelley, in some sense, wants to challenge every one of us, her readers, and ask us to question what it is that we're actually made of. Maybe look inside the story within the story within the story of in our of our own lives in our own heads, because just like the monster, everyone thinks of themselves as a good person. It doesn't even matter if you've done something as bad as killing another person, even if that person was completely innocent. 
And you have to ask, well, whose fault is it? And notice in this one instance, you can't blame the mother. There is no such thing. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't have a mother. But anyway, in all seriousness, this is this chronological revelation of the creation of this being. It's a rhetorical argument. I mean, he's making a point. He wants something. And this is the monster's thesis that we really don't get to until the very end of chapter 16. But what he's going to do is he's going to create a series of premises and conclusions. And if you follow the monster's logic, and if you accept every one of his premises, you will absolutely have to agree with him on his conclusion. Well, he's going to start strong by saying, you accuse me of murder, but you want to murder me and wouldn't feel guilty about it. He says, listen to my story. I'm going to give you a choice. I can either be a good person or and a good neighbor, or I'm going to ruin your life. It's all on you. And on that note, they go into the ice cave and they settle in. True. And there's really, I wish we could go through and kind of summarize everything that he says, because there's a lot going on, but we don't have time for that. So I do want to hit the high points. Mainly, when I read this, the one thing that I wanted to know is what happened immediately after the monster was created. And it is sad. He's born. He's abandoned. He tries to cover himself with clothes. But, of course, he's eight feet tall. Nothing fits. It's cold. And, basically, he sits down and cries. It's so sad. True. And and from there, he just kind of makes his way wandering aimlessly with an oversized cloak of victors, I guess, until he finds people and food and eventually shelter and really begins to stalk a family. Oh, yeah. The DeLacy family. And this is, again, where we got to suspend our reality because, of course, none of these things could have ever happened. But that doesn't matter. What we're supposed to see is that he finds this perfect ideal family that Mary Shelley has created. And this is her vision, really, of what a functional family truly is. Uh, And it serves in some ways kind of to frame for the monster what being a good human being is. And in some ways, we're going to see what Shelley thinks a good family is that's living in fellowship with each other in perfect harmony and have a healthy, supportive community. So, Gary, what is it that the monster takes away from these experiences? Who is the DeLacy family? Well, I think it's very interesting, first of all, that that Mary Shelley sets them up as the family she doesn't have. (laughs) Yeah, the perfect one. Yes. Well, I mean, it's, it's a previously a wealthy family whose son, through a series of horrible choices, gets all of them kicked out of their home country and with no money. And he did it for the love of a woman. Hmm. Who at first was taken away from him. So the family is at first a very sad family, but it's clear to the monster that they are indeed a connected entity. They have loyalty, companionship, and they have love towards each other. And in spite of everything bad that has happened, and they don't kick Felix out, even though he's responsible for the whole mess. True. And it's kind of watching them day after day that the monster really learns to value and practice even goodness. And he learns what goodness is kind of by watching them. We see him at first stealing from them, but then he quits that. He's going to watch Felix and Agatha take care of each other. They're going to take care of their father. He watches them go from sad to happy with safety. The long lost love shows up and they have this reunion. So he goes, uh, 
as far as even giving them stuff, providing for them, because he considers himself a family member, even though he's not really. Right. He's watching <laughs> yeah. from a secret yes. space. And again, Mary Shelley draws from her own experience in exile when she was sent away to live with a family that loved each other. I mean, she knew how it felt to observe a group of people that cared for each other and yet not be one of them. Although she doesn't get the treatment the monster does upon his revelation. No, I'd say she doesn't. Um, the monster is going to really observe love and feel sympathy for this family, which is an important thing to realize when you think about what he's getting ready to do. Uh, he becomes human, maybe. We also see him self-educate. And let me say this, the monster could have benefited from a podcast series, but <laughs> he had some catch up to do. Uh, but by watching them, he learns to speak and he learns to read. And then he finds some books and he reads these great classics of Western literature, Volney's Ruins of Empire, Plutarch's Lives, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's Sorrows of Werther. But the most important one, and the one that I think matters the most to the story is he reads Paradise Lost by John Milton, which, of course, is one of the most influential books in the Western canon. And because of that, we got to kind of park here just for a second. Um, everyone, everyone who is just even mildly educated in those days was extremely familiar with this text. And so clearly Shelley is too. And of course, everyone, even if you're not educated, is familiar with this story where Milton takes the epic poem. So um, Paradise Lost, if you're not familiar with it, is really about the struggle between God and Satan and the creation of man and woman. And there's a lot that you can say about it. I mean, there's entire courses built around just that story or that poem. But what we care about and want to talk about is what the monster got out of it. So the monster gets this theological education and he understands that God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the Garden of Eden. And he understands that God takes responsibility and provides for the beings that he has created. He provides everything, everything they need physically and everything they need emotionally. So he can relate. The monster compares God to Victor and he's going to say, just like God created Adam, you created me, except God took care of Adam. God talked with Adam, but I'm alone. God provided for Adam. You neglected me. And then he's going to say this. God made a companion for Adam. Where is mine? Now that all makes sense. And then he's going to slide over and we're going to see that he doesn't just identify with Adam in the story. The monster also identifies with Satan and he calls himself, listen, he uses the language of the Bible, the fallen angel. So what we have is a creature. He is Adam and Satan. He is victim and aggressor. Now that's pretty complex. That is. And she's 18. We can never forget she's 18 when she's writing these ideas. I mean, and is this how he becomes evil because he's rejected by Victor? Well, he's not just rejected by Victor. Uh, we didn't finish telling the DeLacy story. So he's going to fall in love with the DeLacy family, then finally gets up the nerve to approach them and basically ask to be a part of their family. The father, who's blind, by the way, 
listens to him. He's sympathetic. But then the other family members walk in and they freak out just like everybody else. Just like Victor, they run away, they pack up, and they never come back. So this reaction convinces the monster that he's just absolutely incapable of relationships with people. And so he really makes a decision, a conscious decision, and he turns. And the language here is really provocative. He says this, I too can create desolation. My enemy is not invulnerable. This death will carry despair to him. This, of course is similar to Satan's plan against God. So we're supposed to see that there's a parallel here. Satan in Paradise Lost or in the biblical text doesn't go after God himself for revenge. Instead, Satan goes after what God loves, which is us. So in Paradise Lost, Satan actually says to waste his whole creation. This would surpass common revenge and interrupt his joy in our confusion. And just like Satan, the creature is going to say, I am malicious because I am miserable. Now, I think the reader can sympathize with this, but then uh, he says this, if I cannot inspire love, I will cause fear and chiefly toward you, my arch enemy, because my creator, do I swear inexhaustible hatred. So there's a claim of innocence here. And so everything I do, I'm going to be innocent of, no matter how evil it is. And we're asked as readers, you know, is this an acceptable justification? If you accept, and I assume you can, that it's entirely Victor's fault for everything that the monster has experienced. So does this make it okay for the monster to respond like he does? Well, that's a great question. And you can respond in any way you want. You make any choice you want in this situation, but the choice that you make says something about who you are as a person. And this is true for the monster as well. I mean, of course, there's also this way to look at it. The monster is two years old, literally. If you want to apply um, Erickson's developmental theory, uh, acting out in rage is what a two-year-old does when they don't get what they want. And it's not out of the ordinary. As a matter of fact, it's very ordinary. And we've seen it demonstrated, and we call it the terrible twos. The difference is, is when you're two, a parent can pick you up while you flail your arms and legs, and your rage is safe. But when you're an eight-foot monster, not as easy. So anyway, and can we remember that Mary's own son, baby William is less than two years old when she's writing this book. So there's little doubt she saw uncontrolled emotion running around the house while she penned the book. But that may be beside the point. Well, and it can be a both and. Yeah, the monster has to decide who he's going to be as a person. And the monster also has to manage a bunch of emotions. Everyone does. But uh, the other question that I wanted to ask you the mark on William's neck, he left it. Uh, what does that mean? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question because he does that again. And we do wonder why. At this point, however, we don't know yet that that's going to be a pattern. But we already have the obvious challenge to the noble savage idea. I mean, is the monster goodness made evil? I think Mary leaves room to suggest that the answer is both and not either or. Victor seems to be responsible, but the monster also has a choice and he chooses to respond with evil. He's passing it forward instead of taking the much more difficult initiative to end it. That's another way of looking at it and one many people choose. Well, there's one more thing to bring up and I kind of think it's interesting. Um, 
and it's also part of the monster story, we have to remember that this story is not just let me tell you what happened to me. It's rhetorical. He has a reason for telling the story. And the reason is he wants to persuade Victor to do something he knows Victor doesn't want to do. He wants Victor to create another monster. So if you want to take it back to Paradise Lost, you could say that in this narrative, Victor is again like Satan. And the point of the whole narrative is to seduce Victor to do something that now he would view as a violation of his conscience or to use a Christian phrase. He wants Victor to sin again. Wow. <laughs> so many things going on. And I want to say it for the umpteenth time. She's 18 years old. And she creates some of the most uh, complex complex dialogue and storytelling. It's it's really amazing. So, well, there's obviously more to think and say about all that, but we're going to have to let it go for at least a week. So if you have a thought on that, send it our way. We'd love to hear from you. Keep up with us on our Instagram page. Keep up with us on our Facebook page. Check us out at howtolovelitpodcast.com. But even more important than that, Tell your friends about our podcast. Thanks for being with us. Peace out. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 